This morning, we are going to be in Psalm 23. Next week, I'm going to be in Psalm 24. And in these two psalms next to each other in the Psalter, the, the first, Psalm 23, really emphasizes the Lord's imminence, his nearness to us. And then Psalm 24, which is right after this, is the Lord's transcendence. And so I see with these two psalms uh, going to help us balance, as we can oftentimes lean one way too far or the other, thinking that, you know, God is my buddy, God is my friend, especially in our culture, is going to be balanced by the psalm next week, that God is transcendent. He is the king who is lifted up on his throne. And yet this week, in Psalm 23, we see that he is also imminent, that he is near to us and cares for us. I would guess that all of us are familiar with Psalm 23. It's one of my favorite psalms, and it's because of the comfort that it brings to us. I have memorized this psalm, and I meditate on this psalm when I am fearful. It brings us comfort to know that the Lord is watching over us, that he is with us no matter what we go through. And so with that, let's just... Let's just read Psalm 23. It's a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The psalm begins with the, with the attribution of David as the author. This was one of many psalms that David wrote, but it's particularly important that David wrote this psalm because if anybody knew what shepherding was, it was David. And just by way of introduction, I want to paint a picture for you of what shepherding was. Many of us in our society now, we are totally ignorant of what it was to be a shepherd. So I want to paint that for you just briefly by way of introduction. Shepherding was not a popular job. You might remember, if you have read through Genesis, when Joseph, his brothers, sold him into slavery. He ended up in Egypt, and he ended up being second to no one but Pharaoh himself, in charge of everything. And Joseph's brothers came, and they were starving. Their families were running out of food, and so they came to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, and he had prepared a meal for them when they came to visit the second time. 
And the scripture says that Joseph ate by himself, Joseph's brothers ate by themselves, and the rest of the Egyptians at Joseph's table ate by themselves. You see, the Egyptians would not eat with shepherds because they were an abomination. Shepherding was the lowest job on the totem pole. Even when we look at David's life, he was the runt of the family, he was the youngest, and therefore shepherding was his job. When Samuel came to anoint the new king, he saw all David's brothers went through all of them, and Samuel said, is there no one else? And they said, well, there's the little runt in the field, but surely not him. And even when, even when David came, Samuel said, surely not this one. It's because David was just a little tyke. He was the runt of the family. He was the lowest on the totem pole, and so he was the one who did the shepherding. Shepherding was not a popular job. But a day in the life of a shepherd, this is why it wasn't popular, a day in the life of the shepherd looked like a shepherd would sleep out in the field with his sheep. He would be weathering the heat by day and the cold by night, having to stand ready to defend the sheep. So the shepherd, he would get up in the morning He would call to his sheep, he would call to them, and they would follow him out. He would lead them in a circuitous route throughout the country, never going the same place every day in a row, because the sheep would literally gnaw the grass down below the dirt and eat all of the grass. So you would take them to a different place every day, take them out to feed them, and then lead them to water, and then they would lay down and rest. After a good rest, the shepherd would lead them back to the fold for the night. On returning to the fold, which was generally a stone fenced in structure with a small opening, the shepherd would stand there and count every sheep as he came back in to make sure none were missing. And then after all the sheep were in the fold at night, the shepherd would lay in this opening He would literally be the gate and lay in this opening so that nothing could come in or out. Then he would sleep lightly because any intruder that came, he would have to fend off. Any predators that came, any thieves that came, it was his job to protect them. So he could not sleep deeply. And the next day he would get up And he would do it again, and again, and again, and again, and again. It was very monotonous. On top of being monotonous, it was a very dirty and disgusting job. You see, shepherds didn't have personal veterinarians back then, and so they would literally have to, if a sheep got injured, they would have to clean wounds, bind up wounds, If they got infected with maggots or worms, it was the shepherd's job to clean them and tend to them. Oftentimes, this entailed cleaning feces out of fur as sick sheep would dirty other sheep, or things would get stuck in their fur along with feces, and the shepherd would have to clean them. It was a monotonous job, it was a dirty and disgusting job, and it was also a dangerous job. 
David himself recounts killing lions and bears, fending them off of his sheep. Shepherds literally had to lay their lives down for the sheep who were otherwise helpless. One modern-day shepherd notes that even a, a dog could, for fun, kill up to 200 sheep in the middle of the night if the shepherd wasn't watching. And so the shepherd lays his life down to protect the sheep. This is the picture that we ought to have in our minds of shepherding as we come to this psalm. So that's the, the introduction, a psalm of David. I'm just going to briefly explain to you this, the structure of the psalm. As many commentators know, this is one of the hardest psalms to outline. And I think verse, verses 1 and 6 really give us, uh, verse 1 is a, an introduction to the psalm, and verse 6 is a summary of all that David wants us to understand Just look at verses 1 and 6. If you really take everything out of the middle, you lose the details, but you don't lose the substance of it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you have that introduction and that summary, and everything in between is really just details highlighting what David wants us to understand about shepherding. So let's look at verse 1, which is really just the declaration of Yahweh's shepherding. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. This is, we don't want to just rush past this, because this is the covenant name of God. This is the the God who revealed himself by name to Moses at the burning bush who he could not approach with sandals on his feet for it was holy ground. This is the God when Israel was brought out of the promised land, they could not approach the mountain or they would be killed. This is the God who at this time resided in the holy of holies in the tabernacle that could only be approached once a year and by the high priest. This is the transcendent and untouchable God that the Israelites were very familiar with. And yet David here is highlighting that while all of that is true, while Yahweh is transcendent, he is untouchable, he is unapproachable, he is also imminent and near to all of his people. Yahweh condescends from his throne on high and bows himself to personally care for his people. The king of the universe on the one hand and the the shepherd, the lowly position of the shepherd, there could be nothing further apart. And yet this is how God chooses to reveal himself as our loving shepherd. He cares intimately for his Sheep. He cares intimately for his people. And though it is beneath him to personally care for us, he does. And so at a time when, when David would be 
writing this, people had a very, very high view of God, much different than today. We have a very low view of God in our society. This would have been a shock to people, possibly even an offense, to liken the God of the universe, the king who sits on his throne, to a lowly shepherd. And so we don't want to rush past this. This is emphasizing the Lord's humility and his condescension to care for us. He draws near to his people. And this ought to bring us great comfort. This whole psalm just oozes with comfort as we understand that the the high king of heaven, the God of the universe who commands the armies of heaven, he is the one watching over us. David goes on and he says, just by way of introduction, Yahweh's Shepherding is so sufficient, he says, I shall not want. Now, the, the word for want here, it's, it's fine as long as you don't attach to it any connotation of desire. The Hebrew here means to decrease or to be lacking or be devoid of something. The English word want can have the idea of desire there, but it's not. The old translation might be a little bit better. I prefer that, whereas I shall not lack. That's the idea he's getting across here. I shall not lack. And the Hebrew is much stronger than it is interpreted in the English. In the Hebrew, there's the strongest possible way to negate something. Uh, In the Greek, we see a, a similar construction in the Greek, and it's translated when Paul says, may it never be. May it never be. And this is the, the Hebrew equivalent of that strong grammatical construction, the strongest negation possible. And so the appropriate translation here is, I never lack. I never lack anything that I need, David says. Yahweh's shepherding is so sufficient, David never lacks anything that he needs. Yahweh's personal care for him is so comprehensive that there is nothing that he needs. And he lacks nothing because he has all that he needs in his loving shepherd who is there taking care of him. Are you content with Yahweh alone? Even if the Lord took everything from you, as he did many times from David, can you say this? I have no need. I lack nothing. Are you content in him alone to have him as your shepherd, regardless of what happens in this life? So this is the declaration of Yahweh's shepherding and its sufficiency, its comprehensiveness. But now David, he wants to explain to us a little bit what he means by this. He's going to illustrate Yahweh's shepherding for us for a couple reasons. Number one, so we can be comforted by it. And second, so we can emulate it and follow his example in our own shepherding. And so in verses four and five, we're going to see two aspects of Yahweh's shepherding that we might be comforted in him and so that we might follow his Example. We're going to see two aspects of Yahweh's shepherding that we might be comforted and follow his examples. And these two aspects of his shepherding 
are the immaterial and the material. Or you might say the spiritual and the physical. Man is both immaterial and material. We have a body and we have a soul. And Yahweh here we see shepherding is shepherding both aspects of man. So first, in verses 2 and 3, we see Yahweh's immaterial shepherding brings tranquil rest. Immaterial shepherding brings tranquil rest. Let's read verses 2 and 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So I want to explain a little bit why I have outlined it the way that I have. If you look at the psalm, verses 2 and 3, they all have the third person pronoun, he, 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 he. That's highlighted in our English Bibles by being at the front. And then the, the second couple verses are very heavy on the second person pronoun, you, 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 you. And so that's how I've divided it up. I've also divided it up here because in Hebrew poetry, uh, Hebrew poetry is not uh, marked by rhythm or rhyme as much as it is parallelism. Things are uh, parallel or likened to one another or they're antithetical to one another, they're opposed to one another. And here in these verses, I see a parallelism. And this helps explain As you read Psalm 23, you might be a little confused because he seems to go in and out of the shepherding metaphor. He describes shepherding, green pastures, still waters, and then he's talking about soul and righteousness. And then he goes back into it, talking about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, and then he's talking about a banquet of food at a table being prepared for him, a cup. So he seems to be going in and out of the shepherding metaphor. And I think what explains this, if you you outline it this way with verses 2 and 3, if you look at your text, there's four lines there that all begin with he. And they form a chiastic parallelism, which basically means that the first and the last line are parallel. So the first he and the last he are parallel, and then the Two middle ones are parallel with one another. And this is important because the second half of those four, the second half of that chiastic parallelism, he leaves the shepherding metaphor to explain what he means by it. Okay, and then that second set of verses, it's the same thing, only there's six lines in that one. So I think this helps explain why he goes in and out of the the shepherding metaphor is because of this parallelism. And if you missed all of that, Don't worry about it. The content is the same. It's just how I have broken it out, give you some uh, some things to chew on later. This first section on the immaterial shepherding of Yahweh, like I said, it's because of verse 3, I think this section is on the immaterial aspect of man. The talk of soul and righteousness doesn't seem fitting for a shepherding metaphor. And that's because he has, at that point, left the metaphor to speak more plainly and explain it further. But let's jump into verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. 
In the Hebrew, David breaks the normal word order and he throws, just like it would be awkward in our English translation, uh, he throws the description to the front. Let me just read to you how it reads in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it actually reads, in green pastures, he makes me lie down and beside still waters, he leads me. And that's not normal in the Hebrew either, but David throws the description, the picture to the front because that's what he wants us to focus on. He's doing this to emphasize the imagery. He wants us to picture the imagery here. The green pastures, the word for pastures, in and of itself, it has the idea of a pasture full of grass where you take your sheep to graze. It already implies vegetation, but that word for green there is another word for vegetation in the Hebrew, just emphasizing the absolute lush vegetation of this pasture that Yahweh leads his sheep to. So picture a, a lush green meadow with tall, fluffy grass, just sheep laying peacefully in it. And he goes on to say, beside still waters. This word for beside is, is literally the preposition for upon and, or over. And it's used to indicate proximity, extreme nearness to water. It's used of Moses and Aaron when they extended the staff. They were right on the shore of the water and they extended their staff over the water to call the frogs out. They extended their staff over the water. It just denotes extremely close proximity to water. The word there for still, it's literally waters of rest. Waters of rest. And this word refers to a resting place, a place of quiet. It can be even used to refer to psychological composure, your mind being at rest. Whereas tempestuous waters spoke of distress, calm waters were just a picture of rest. So there's sheep laying in, in lush green vegetation. They're laying in the grass, which implies that they've already eaten their fill of it. Right next to the water, implying that they've already been cleaned and they've already drank of it and they are resting. There's a picture of peaceful serenity with sheep at rest. They are fully satisfied and at rest. They're not stirring, they're not stirring, they're not worrying about the predators, about the dangers that lurk around every corner. They are at perfect rest with their shepherd watching over them. Do you resemble this as a sheep in the care of your great shepherd? If he is your shepherd, this ought to be a picture of you. Or are you wringing your hands, especially in this political season, worrying, stirring about what's going to happen? Some of us, we are doing fine. We resemble this peace and rest until we turn on the news in the evening. If this isn't a picture of you, how do you get to this place of rest? I mean, we would all love to be at peaceful rest like this throughout our life. 
How do we get to this place of rest? And I think this is where David leaves the metaphor, explains this picture a little bit. One commentator says that he leaves the reality to behind, or he leaves the emblem behind to explain it with reality. Verse 3 is the reality behind the metaphor, the reality behind the emblem. Verse 3, David moves on to help explain what he wants us to get from this. He restores my soul. While some think that this refers to regeneration, uh, the verb is in an imperfect form which denotes ongoing action, habitual action. The Lord continually restores his soul. Flip over to Psalm 19, right before this. Psalm 19, just a couple pages before. What is David referring to when he talks about restoration of the soul? This is David again using the exact same phrase here in these verses, and I think this gives us an insight to what he's getting at there. Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Do you see the, the immaterial aspect there of the benefits of the, the word of God, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart? And so I think what David is getting at is if we want to be those sheep at peaceful rest in the care of our loving Savior, how we get there is meditating, having our soul revived by the shepherd who does so through his word. It is the word of the Lord that revives the soul. I mean, we all know the Lord is not physically with us to speak to us, to comfort us, but we do have his word, and it is, it is his word that revives our soul refreshes our soul. Spurgeon says in his commentary that it is the word of God that restores the soul. He says when the soul grows sorrowful, he revives it. When it grows weak, he strengthens it, and he does so by his word. So do you want to be at a place where your soul is at rest and your mind is at ease? Is at ease? Yahweh shepherds you through that by means of his word. But this is not a mystical shepherding. As I said, none of us sit in our, at least I hope not, none of us sit in our room at night hoping God is really going to speak to us and comfort us. And even when it comes to reading our own Bibles, that's great, but the Lord has other means that he comforts us. He comforts us by means of his under-shepherds. The elders of your church the shepherding of the Lord is not a mystical thing. It's, it's played out in the local church as you submit to your elders and you look to them for care and for comfort. And so if you are fearful, if you are anxious, the Lord shepherds you as you pick up the phone and you call one of his under-shepherds that he has put over you. You cannot physically draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ, but you can draw near to your elders and they can do this very thing by counseling your soul. 
with the word of God. So while it is the Lord shepherding us, he's doing so. The means by which he's going to do so is through his under shepherds. But it is the word of God that restores the soul. He goes on and he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Once again, walking, this is a picture of walking in paths of righteousness, staying in righteousness, walking in righteousness. How do we grow in sanctification with a greater accuracy to walking in paths of righteousness after our Lord? 1 Peter 2, 1-3, by taking in the pure milk of the word, by drawing near to the church, we get the word of God which equips us to walk in paths of righteousness, walking in paths of righteousness, constantly being refreshed in your soul, or you might say being having your mind renewed. That's how you get to be at peace and at rest, never worried about the world. It is when you have your, your fill of his word, you have drunk of the living word, that you can lay rest and satisfied before your shepherd. How you get there is you be at church, you hear God's word preached, you be in the word daily, but you come to this church, you hear the word preached, the Sunday morning, the word being preached is the primary means by which God is going to sanctify you, by the means by which he is going to comfort you, to grow you, to help you put off your fears. It's going to be very hard for you to show up and be terrified of what's going on in the world, what's happening in the world when you come here and the majority of people here are not concerned about those things. That alone is going to strengthen you. You're gonna, they can help you and strengthen you by their personal counsel. You can be encouraged by their faces, by the singing of God's word that reminds us that this life is not all there is, that there is a life after this where we will be across the Jordan, so to speak, in eternity where none of this will ever matter again. This place is what, above everything else, as the word of God is taught, is going to still your heart. And all of this, especially, especially in the times that we live in, it's going to still our hearts no matter what happens. But he goes on and he says, all of this, it is not for your sake, David says, but it is for his name's sake. It is for his glory that you be sanctified and rest in him. You think God is... Glorified if you're running about, fretting about by every little thing that's happening in our world, even as big as the things seem to be today. God is first and foremost concerned for his glory and our sanctification. It reminds me of Romans 8:28. God does all things for his glory and for the good of those who love him. His first priority is shepherding our immaterial souls and seeing us sanctified and bringing him glory. Shepherding our souls and seeing us sanctified and at rest in him alone. We, this ought to bring us great comfort that the Lord is first and foremost concerned with our eternal souls 
And we need to emulate this in our own shepherding. If you have children, you are a shepherd over your family. If you are married, you are a shepherd in your family. And we must prioritize the immaterial shepherding, the spiritual shepherding of our families the way the Lord does here. This is of the utmost importance. Man, you need to make sure you're leading spiritually, that you are making spiritual leadership a priority in your home. You are the one who is going to shepherd your family. You are going to be the one responsible for them to care for their souls, to teach them about the Lord, to emulate his shepherding to them. And you must make this a priority. Math and reading and science, those are not the priority. Sacrificing other things and making this the priority is what you need to do. But this immaterial aspect of shepherding is why the elders were so adamant about opening our church back up and not closing, even if the government said, you must close, because man is immaterial and the the soul of men need to be cared for. And it wasn't that the elders were unconcerned about our physical health, but they just knew that if everybody was physically healthy while spiritually rotting at home, that was far worse for you than if even someone here was to contract the virus and die. The immaterial is far more important of a priority than the material. And so in your own homes, model this to your family. Make that a priority. If you're not at rest, like the sheep David described, the solution is to draw near, draw near to his word, draw near to his under-shepherds, be strengthened by his word and the fellowship, draw near to your elders, receive their counsel, and you will be comforted. You can be one of those sheep that is not affected even if a lion comes up because the shepherd, knowing the shepherd is there to protect you. And that brings us to point two. The material shepherding refreshes, brings refreshing comfort. Material shepherding brings refreshing comfort. As I mentioned, these are, there's another parallelism here. Let me just read these and you can kind of see, see the parallel. I'm going to read the first line and the last line I see in the, the chiastic parallelism just to see how you, just so you can see how I see this lining up. So starting in verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you anoint my head with oil. Anointing of the head with oil was a comfort for what ailed them. I will fear no evil in the presence of my enemies, for you are with me. You prepare a table before me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. There are two elements here to the, the material shepherding of Yahweh. There's two elements that David draws out. The first is protection, and the second is provision. And both of these things bring comfort to 
David, as he thinks of God's protection of him, as he thinks of God's provision for him, and these things are kind of intermixed in here, but the protection of Yahweh emerges first. But look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is probably one line that should have been updated in a lot of your Bibles, but many publishers they want people to buy their new translation when they come with it out on the shelves, and they're fearful that people will turn to very common texts of Scripture like this, and if it doesn't sound familiar, people will not buy that translation. This is one thing that should have been updated as Hebrew, the Hebrew studies have progressed and updated. This isn't even though, this is even when. It's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You should also understand that there's no article in the Hebrew. That is to say that it's not definite. This is just a valley. Some people have tried to find the valley of the shadow of death that David was referring to. It's not referring to a specific valley. David is just saying, even when I walk through a valley of the deepest darkness where death is imminent, danger lurks about, even when, David says, I will fear no evil. Now here where there's this negation, this is again that very strong negation, and so it ought to read, I never fear evil. Even when he is in the darkest of valleys with dangers lurking all about, lions and bears lurking all about, he never fears evil. Is this you? Can you say, even when so-and-so wins the election, I will never fear. Even when religious liberty is stripped from me and I may have to give my life for the sake of Christ, I will never fear. How can we be like David here and say we never fear anything? David does not say, I never fear because I have killed bears and lions with my own hands, even though he had. David does not say, I never fear because I killed Goliath of all people. Who could be more powerful than him? David does not say, I never fear because I am a king with an army behind me who will protect me and I have defeated all my enemies before me. Therefore, I have no reason to fear. And while David, more than any of us, had every reason to look to himself to find a reason not to fear, he didn't. And it is here that we find the remedy to fear. First, and implicitly, it is a putting off, it is a rejection and an abandonment of all self-reliance. The remedy to fear is, first of all, a putting off and an abandonment of all self-reliance. And it is a putting on of complete trust in the almighty sovereign shepherd. David says, I never fear evil, for you are with me. 
So what stills and what snuffs out any fear in David is, is his constant remembrance that Yahweh is where, with him wherever he is. Yahweh is with him wherever he is, and his lack of trust in self, his lack of trust in anything, money, friends, he puts all that aside. He trusts completely in the sovereign God who he knows is watching over his soul. He knows that no matter what happens in this life, Yahweh is there wherever we go. And he goes on to explain the, the aspect of protection here. He really trusts Yahweh to protect him when he says, your rod and your staff. Now the rod and the staff in the, the Hebrew language, these two words are pretty much synonymous in any case, in any profession, except for in shepherding. This word for rod, it actually comes from a verb which means to slay. And the rod, it was a short staff that the shepherd, it was the primary weapon of the shepherd. It was often made of a hardwood sapling. A shepherd would find a sapling of oak, or some other hardwood, and they would pull it out of the ground, and they would take that hardwood bulb on the bottom of that, and they would clean it off, and then they would cut it to be about two and a half feet in length, and this would give the shepherd a good-sized club. Some shepherds would even take nails and nail them through the end of that, or put metal shards in the end of this as a primitive mace. This was the primary weapon of a shepherd. And these weapons often had a leather strap on them. They would strap them to their hand. They would have it with them all the time. Or they would, in their outer cloak, have a pouch for it, almost like a gun holster. So it's ready to draw at the slightest sign of danger. And so David brings up this rod because he never fears, because he knows Yahweh is there protecting him. And the staff was a longer stick. It was a six-foot stick in length. It was often a word that was used to refer to a cane for elderly people. They would use this staff to support themselves and walk with. But just imagine a shepherd standing on a hill, watching over his sheep, and he's leaning on his staff. He's got his rod in his hand. He's leaning on his staff. He's watching over his sheep. It's a picture of a shepherd who is in control, watching over his sheep. Or the, some shepherds would even at night lay down in, as the gate, and they would put that rod across the top of the stone. They would lay in the bottom, and they would put that rod across the opening of the stone, just as another barrier for any intruder. Both of these are symbols of protection and watchfulness of the shepherd. So David says, his rod and his staff. And here begins the second half of these verses where he leaves the analogy to explain what he means by them. He says, they comfort me. This gives the reality of the emblem. David was comforted by the rod and the staff. The rod and the staff could indicate several things. But what David wants us to understand is that they were a comfort to him 
in the darkest valley, knowing that he will protect him and watch over him. Yahweh's protection is clear here, and it brings a comfort to David. But now David adds another element to this, and that is the element of provision. He goes on to say in verse 5, you prepare a table before me. This word for prepare is a, a word that refers to setting the table, getting ready for a banquet. And once again, it's the God of the universe who is pictured as doing some lowly, menial task. Again and again, David reveals the, the humbling nature of the Lord. And this is, this is an example for us to follow. The God of the universe coming down to do something like provide and set the table for David. Men, if the God of the universe is pictured as doing some of the most menial tasks like shepherding, and setting the table, preparing a meal, what does that exemplify for you? Do you think yourself above menial tasks in your home? If the God of the universe is not above them, you certainly are not. Here again, we just see the humility of our God in his protection and his provision for us. David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So as a picture of David sitting there, on the one hand, God is, David's sitting there and God is preparing the table, preparing a feast for him, providing for David. And on the other hand are his enemies right across from him. The, the language is very clear. It's in the presence of David and his enemies are right there opposite him. And so God is standing there preparing for David on the one hand while holding back the enemies on the other. This is a picture of Yahweh providing and protecting David in the midst of his enemies in the darkest of times. And this is why David never fears because he knows Yahweh stands between him and anyone who would come up to attack him. No enemy dares come up against David. And David knows this. No enemy will be allowed to advance against him unless the Lord lets them. And we ought to remember that, beloved. No matter what happens in this life, no one comes against us except those whom the Lord allows. This ought to bring us great, great comfort. David goes on to say, you anoint my head with oil. The word for anoint here is not the typical word for anoint. David was trying to avoid any kind of, of kingly or ceremonial anointing by using a word to, that means more of a refreshment. And as I already indicated, anointing someone's head with oil was a blessing. It was a comfort for sunburns, for irritation. And so once again here, David is just emphasizing the aspect of the comfort that Yahweh's 
provision and protection brings to him. This brings us great comfort knowing that the Lord is always watching over us, ready to smite our enemies with his rod. And that only those whom he allows will come against us. But for our application for following his example, men, the, the shepherding in your home ought to bring your family comfort. Your material shepherding ought to bring comfort to those in your care. That is to say, if your protection and your provision does not bring comfort to your family, then you're not doing it right. If your wife isn't comforted by your shotgun that you want sitting by the front door, you ought to find somewhere else for it. If your job doesn't provide the stability in the home and the comfort that your wife needs... You've got to address that and think about that. Your shepherding in your own home ought to bring comfort. Your protection and your provision of your family ought to bring them comfort, not greater anxiety. You must, we must as men, even not just spiritually, but physically protect and provide for our families. I've worked with someone in ministry who, before who thought that uh, men ought never to engage in any kind of violence, even defensive. And someone asked him, even if someone came to attack his wife, would he defend her? And he said, no. Men, that is not godly shepherding. Godly shepherding even protects physically and so we have to understand we have to protect those in our homes as well. Don't fall into that notion. God has set you as a shepherd over his people. If you have a wife, you are a shepherd over her. If you have children, you are a shepherd over them. And you must not let them be devoured by anyone or you are neglecting your duties, physical or spiritual. So David summarizes Yahweh's material shepherding of him when he says, my cup overflows. The Hebrew word here for overflows is not a verb. It's the noun for abundance or superfluity. And if you're like me and you had no idea what superfluity is, I have a definition for you. Superfluity refers to an unnecessarily or excessively large amount of something. An unnecessarily or excessively large amount of something. And this is David's summary of Yahweh's physical shepherding of him. This is how David can say, I lack nothing because he has a superabundance because God has so abundantly provided for him and he has protected him, allowing him to hold on to all of it. And as Americans, we can especially relate to this. Every one of us ought to feel like our cup overflows. We are the richest among the world. This speaks of 
contentment in what the shepherd has given him. And like I said, there's many times where David had everything taken from him, and yet I guarantee you he would have had the same attitude, that he had all that he needed, and that his cup overflowed, even with the very life of breath in his lungs. It speaks of the sufficiency of Yahweh's shepherding. We, beloved, we ought to, we ought to have this same sentiment. No matter what happens in our life, our cup overflows. Now in verse 6, as I mentioned, David summarizes why he lacks nothing, why he fears nothing in this life. He never lacks the immaterial. He has rarely lacked the material. Psalm 23, verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is why David can say he never lacks anything, why he never fears anything, the ultimate reason why he can say that. This word for surely here just emphasizes certainty. Certainly, absolutely, surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The word for mercy there is the Hebrew word chesed, and it's translated a myriad of ways in the English. Sometimes it's translated as love, sometimes kindness, grace, steadfast love, loving kindness. This was the covenant love God has for, had for his redeemed people. One commentator even says that this is the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament idea of grace. That is unmerited divine favor. And so David says here, in summary fashion, goodness, possibly referring back to the material aspect of his shepherding, and mercy or unmerited divine favor, referring back to the immaterial aspect of his shepherding. He says, these two things follow me all the days of my life. He personifies these two attributes or characteristics of God, goodness and love. He personifies them as pursuing him for the rest of his life. And in, we ought to see in reality, this is the shepherd himself pursuing David, following David. The verb there indicates ongoing habitual action. He pursues me all the days of my life. David, he kind of draws his life to a close there. He says, these things, goodness and mercy, shall follow me all the days of my life. He kind of draws his life to a close there. And then he said, and this is why David could say he lacks nothing and he fears nothing. He says, I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. David draws his days to a close and he declares his ultimate end. No matter what happens in this life, no matter what happens in this life, Yahweh is going to bring me home for eternity. And beloved, this is where we need to keep our minds, especially in this 
tumultuous season, no matter what happens in this life, one day Yahweh is going to shepherd us all home. Jesus Christ is going to shepherd us all home to be with him for eternity. Do not fret in this life. When anxieties arise and our souls are in turmoil, when real fears arise, this eternal reality is what stills us, is what causes our minds to be at rest. It's that God still sits on his throne no matter what happens in this life. So let us resolve to trust completely in our sovereign shepherd and resolve to follow his example in our families and as we lead this church. Let us resolve to lead, to provide, and protect as the shepherds he has designed us to be that we might bring comfort to those in our care. So as we close, let's turn our attention to remembering what our Lord has done for us. How the Father gave him a cup that was overflowing, but it was filled with wrath. That we might receive a cup overflowing with blessing. How our good shepherd laid down his life for us. Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, we praise you that you, though you are high and lifted up on your throne, you intimately love and you care for us, Lord. That you have provided the means for our every comfort in your word and the shepherds that you have placed over us and the fellowship of the saints that we have, Lord, help us to utilize those things that we might be those sheep that are at rest, whose minds are at ease, even a world filled with chaos where everyone is worried and everyone is fearful. Let us be the, those sheep that are alight everyone around us who are just bewildered at how we can be so calm, lacking any fear, lacking any anxiety. Let us be those people, Lord. But it is only because of what your Son has done for us in regenerating our hearts. And we thank you and we praise you for that this morning. Amen.